2017. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Poke Runyon, and tonight we present the second part of the chemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz by Valentine Andrea in 1660, followed by an interpretation of the symbolism in relation to internal alchemy, the extended middle pillar chakra system, and Valentinian Gnostic Christianity. We will describe the sacred marriage within the adept him or herself as an analog to the operations on the sixth day in the Tower of Olympus in the chemical wedding story, and we will offer and we will also refer to the works of Jacob Borm, uh, the creation of the magical child, Johann Gichtel, and the mysteries of the spiral and the lightning flash, and the homunculus of Paracelsus. Now, this is the lost key to Rosicrucian sex magic and uh, the ultimate secret of the Hieros Gamos, or sacred marriage. So, stay with us and be enlightened. Now, last week we presented the first installment of the chemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz, in which we developed our interpretation of the symbolic structure and inner meaning of the story. And as you will recall, we revealed and established that the seven days of the chemical wedding uh, preparation and alchemical operation involved uh, in resurrecting the bride and the bridegroom were based on the first seven houses of Christian Rosenkreutz's own natal horoscope. Now, this progression began with his reception of an invitation to the royal wedding. It continued with his journey to the castle, his testing with the other guests, his exploration of the wonders of the castle, wherein he discovered the great celestial terrestrial spherical vault, which projects the constellations upon the earth. And he and the other guests are then entertained by the strange drama of a princess kidnapped, ravished, and tortured by an evil Moorish warlord. She is rescued by the son of her adopted father, the good king, El or Jehovah, if you insist, and his son, the prince who must be Jesus. Now this is a further analog to Jesus and Mary Magdalene and their sacred marriage. Now after the drama, we established uh, Rosenkreutz's discovery uh, of the secret tomb of Venus on the fifth day as also analogous to the relationship of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. We then recounted the execution of the castle's royal family and the false burial of their, of their bodies, which were secretly transported by boat to another castle, the Tower of Olympus, on an island where Rosenkreutz and his companions were transported the following day. Now, all of these activities and the alchemical operation conducted in the Tower of Olympus are directed and supervised by a beautiful young maiden who is referred to as the Virgin. She reports directly to the king and queen before and after their resurrections. Rosenkreutz and his fellow alchemists begin their work 
making planetary elixirs in the basement of the seven-storied tower. After they complete each task, they ascend to the next level. On the second floor, the bodies are distilled. And on the third level, the congealed essence is contained in a golden sphere and sun-baked in a circle of mirrors until it becomes an egg. In the fourth chamber, the bird hatches from the egg, and our story continues. We placed the bird first on warm sand, and the virgin said that before anything was given it to eat, we should tie it up. Otherwise, it would give us all trouble aplenty. And this was done, and then food was brought to it, which was surely none other than the blood of the beheaded people diluted again with prepared water. The bird grew so fast beneath our very eyes that we could that we could understand why the virgin had warned us about it, scratched about itself so fiercely that if anyone had fallen into its clutches, he would soon have been done away with. Now it was quite black and wild, and so another food was brought for it, perhaps the blood of another royal person, whereupon all the black feathers fell out again, and in their place grew snow-white plumage. Then it became somewhat tamer and easier to deal with, though we still did not trust it. And with our third, and with the third meal, its feathers began to become colored, and so beautiful that in all my life I have never seen colors to compare. By now the bird was extremely docile and so friendly towards us that, the, that with the virgin's consent, we let it out of captivity. Now she began, since through your hard work and our old gentleman's permission, the bird has been endowed with life and great perfection. It is proper for us to give it a joyful consecration. Therefore, she ordered lunch to be brought in and us to relax, since now the most demanding work was over. And it was fitting for us to enjoy our past labors. We began to be married together, though we still uh, had our, our morning clothes on, uh, which seemed to make a mockery of our joy. The virgin kept asking questions, perhaps to find out which of us would be the best served by her forthcoming scheme. She was mostly concerned with smelting and was very pleased when she found someone adept at the fine manipulations which distinguished an artist in that field. The luncheon lasted no longer than three-quarters of an hour, most of which time we spent with our bird, which we constantly had to feed with its food. But now it stayed the same size. After lunch, the virgin left us with the bird and went upstairs to open the fifth chamber, to which we ascended in the usual way. And in this level, a bath, like a great kettle, was prepared for our bird, filled with liquid colored with a fine white powder so that it looked like pure milk. It was cool at first. And when the bird was first put in it, he enjoyed it, splashing around and drinking of it. But then the bath began to be heated by lamps placed underneath. And when the bird tried to escape the bath, we clapped a lid on, on the kettle, 
allowing the bird to stick his head out through a vent hole. And in this bath, the bird shed all of his feathers and became as smooth as a human being. Also, the heat no longer seemed to bother him. This amazed me since all of his feathers were consumed in the heated bath, coloring the water blue in the, in the cooking process. And at length, we lifted the lid and gave the bird air, and it sprang out of the vessel by itself, so shining smooth that it was a delight to see. But since it was still somewhat wild, we had to put a collar on it, and, uh, and with a chain around his neck, and thus walked it around the room like a dog on a leash. And meanwhile, a strong fire was lit under the vessel and the bath and was boiled away until the liquid congealed into a blue stone, which we took out and crushed. And then we had to grind it on a stone and finally paint the bird's skin all over with the resulting color. And now it looks stranger still, for it was all blue all over except for its head, which remained white. Now all of our work on this floor was completed. So after the virgin had left with our blue bird, we were summoned through the opening to the sixth floor. Whither we went, and here we were much troubled, for in the middle there stood an altar, exactly as described above in the king's hall on the fourth day. Before the throne was an altar on which was a black book, an ivory candlestick, a striking clock, a revolving celestial globe or armillary sphere, and a skull with a long white snake crawling through its eye sockets. And next to the altar stood a straw, a small crystal fountain, out of which a blood-red liquid constantly ran. Of the six objects mentioned, our bluebird itself now became the seventh. First, the little fountain was set before it, from which it drank a good draught, and then it pecked the white snake until it was badly bleeding. And we had to collect this blood in a golden beaker and pour it down the throat of the bird, who resisted violently. And next we dipped the snake's head into the fountain so that it came back to life and crept into the death's head, after which I saw nothing of it for a long time. And meanwhile, the celestial crystal armillary sphere was moving ever forward until it made the desired conjunction, and the little clock immediately struck one. Thereupon followed another conjunction, and the clock struck. And finally, as we observed, the third conjunction, and it was signaled by the clock, the poor bird submissively laid its neck on the book and willingly allowed its head to be struck off by one of us chosen for that task. And the bird gave forth not a drop of blood until its breast was opened, when the blood spurted out as fresh and clear as if it had been a fountain of rubies. The bird's death touched, touched us to the heart, and yet we could not imagine that a mere bird would help us much, so we let it be. And we cleared it off the altar and helped the virgin burn it to ashes, together with the small tablet hanging, hanging nearby. And with the fire lit from the altar's taper, the ashes were purified several times and carefully preserved in a box of cypress wood. And at this point, our virgin played a trick on myself and three others, 
and after we secured the ashes in the box, she declared, Dear sirs, we are now in the sixth chamber, and we have only one more above us, in which our labors will be at an end. And we will travel back to our castle to awaken our most gracious lords and ladies. And I would have wished that all of you had conducted yourselves in such a way that I could have commended you to our most worthy king and queen, and that you might have received a fitting reward. But these four, and here she pointed to me and three others, have proved against my wishes to be lazy and indolent workers. However, because of my charity towards one and all, I do not want to deliver them to their well-deserved punishment. So that such idleness shall not remain wholly unpunished, I propose this for them. They alone shall be excluded from the forthcoming seventh operation, the most wondrous of all, but they will not need to make further atonement afterwards before their majesties. I leave the reader, reader to imagine how I felt after this speech, for the virgin was able to uh, look so serious that floods of tears overflowed, and we thought ourselves the most miserable of all men. We were marched out the door to mocking music played by the musicians, accompanied by derisive laughter from the virgin's entourage of maidens. What disturbed us the most was the expression of amusement on our beloved virgin's lovely face. But the whole affair turned out quite differently. For as soon as we were out of the door, the musicians told us to cheer up and follow them up the spiral stair that led up past the seventh story to an attic beneath the roof. And here we again encountered the old gentleman, and he was standing on a little round furnace. And he received us warmly and congratulated us heartily on being thus chosen by the Virgin. But when he understood the fright we had received, he almost burst out laughing. For having taken our good fortune so ill, Oh, dear sons, learn from this, he said, that man never knows what good things God intends for him. And as if on cue, the Virgin came up the stairs and into the attic carrying a box. She laughed at us and emptied the box with the ashes of the royal couple into another container and filled her hers up again with a different substance, explaining that she must now throw some sand in the other artist's eyes, but that we should do as the old gentleman tells us, and especially not let our efforts lag. Thereupon she left us for the seventh room below, into which she summoned our companions. What she she there did with them, I cannot say, because of our other of our other duties uh, in the attic laboratory, we had no leisure time to spy on them through the ceiling. Our work was as follows: we had to saturate the ashes with our previously prepared water until they became a thin paste, and then we set the material on the fire until it was well heated. And while it was hot, we poured it out 
into two little forms or molds and let it cool slightly. And now we had some time to spy on our companions below through some cracks between the planks of the attic floor. And they were busy as as at an oven, each one of them having to blow the fire himself with a bellows. And around the oven they stood, pumping furiously, while thinking how much better off they were than we were. And they continued this bellows pumping until our old gentleman called us back to work. We opened up the molds we'd made, and there were two beautiful, bright, and almost transparent images, such as human eyes had never seen of a little boy and a little girl, only four inches long. And what amazed me the most was that they were not hard, but as soft and flesh-like as any human being. But they had no life. And I am quite certain that the Lady Venus image I had viewed was made at the same, in, in the same way. These children, lovely as angels, we had first on two satin cushions and gazed at them for a long time, reduced to a trance state by such marvelous for such a marvelous spectacle. The old gentleman directed us and told us to be content to continually administer one drop after another of the bird's blood, which we had brought in in a golden beaker and then dropped it into the image's mouths. And this apparently made them grow more. And whereas they had started out tiny, now they grew more beautiful in proportion and, and to their size. Would, would that all the painters could have seen this to be ashamed of their art in the face of these creations of nature. Now they were getting so big that we lifted them off the cushions and had to lay them on a long table covered with white velvet. And as the old gentleman directed us, and we covered them as far as the chest with a white satin sheet, and they were so inexpressibly beautiful that we were reluctant to cover them. Before we had used up all the blood, they were already full-grown. And both had curly blonde hair. The image of Venus was nothing to them. But they had no natural warmth, no feeling. They were dead images, yet lively and natural in color. For fear that they might grow too big, the old gentleman had fed them no more, but pulled the sheet up over their faces. And he then lit torches on stands surrounding the table. And here I must caution to the reader not to think that these lights were necessary to the process. They were indeed to keep us from seeing when the souls entered the images. I had twice before seen the flames, but I had told none of my companions or the old gentleman about my experience. Hereupon, he asked us to sit down on a bench opposite the table, and presently the virgin came in with all the musicians and the apparatus for this phase of the operation. She carried two beautiful white garments of a sort I had never yet seen in the castle. I could only think that they were pure crystal, only soft and opaque. That is all I can say about them. She laid them down on the table, and after 
setting her maidens around uh, after setting her maidens around on the benches, she and the old gentleman began to do a lot of conjuring as they circled the table, which was only to confuse us. This happened, as I have said, in the attic under the roof, which was made in a remarkable way. Inside, there were seven concave hemispheres. The middle one was somewhat higher and had at the apex a small round hole which was closed and which none of the others had observed. And after the ceremony, six maidens, each carrying a large trumpet that was wound round with green, fiery, luminous material like a reef. The old gentleman took one of the one of them, one of the trumpets, and after removing some of the lights at the head of the table and uncovering the faces of the images, set the trumpet in one of the mouths so that the upper end, the wider end part of it, was lined up with the roof vent. My companions were staring only at the bodies, but I had other thoughts. For as soon as the foliage or the wreath around the tube was kindled, I saw the hole above open and the bright stream of fire shoot down through the tube and pass into the body. Then the apex hole was shut again and the trumpet removed. Though this misleading procedure, my companions were deceived into thinking that life had entered the image through the fire of the foliage. And as soon as the soul was received, the image of the youth opened and closed its eyes, but scarcely moved. Again, another trumpet, like tube, was placed in the mouth, and the process repeated until both images had each been thus ensouled three times. And I have a footnote on that. And what I'm referring to, ensouled three times. Now, according to Hermes Trismegistus uh, and, and, and Agrippa, um, you have three guardian angels, not, not one. And uh, one, one is from God, and the other two are connected to your horoscope. So you're thrice you're, you're thrice ensouled if you want to consider your holy guardian angel your soul, but at least it's your connection to God. Then all these lights were extinguished and removed. The velvet tablecloth was folded over the bodies, and a double bed was set up and prepared, on which the wrapped bodies were placed, and they were taken out of the coverings laid neatly side by side and left to sleep a good while while the curtains were drawn. And now it was time for the Virgin to see how our other artists were faring. They were quite happy. For as the Virgin later told me, they were having to work in gold, which is also a part of this art, although not the noblest, the most, or no, the most necessary or the best. And they also had a portion of the ashes and were firmly convinced that the whole bird was provided for the sake of gold and that thus the dead bodies would be brought back to life. Meanwhile, we sat silently waiting for our couple to waken, which took place after about half an hour. 
Now, a cheeky little Cupid arrow swinged, winged his way in, and after greeting each of us, flew under the bed's bed curtain and pestered the couple until they woke. And this caused them great astonishment, for they thought they had simply slept from the moment they were beheaded until now. And Cupid, after he had woken them and introduced them to one another again, moved aside to, to let the two recover somewhat. And then he aimed his tricks at us. And in the end, we were obliged to fetch the musicians for him and join in his merriment. Not long afterwards, the virgin herself entered, and after she had humbly greeted the young king and queen, who still felt rather weak, and kissed their hands, she brought them the two beautiful garments I had mentioned earlier. And they donned these shimmering robes and stepped forward to the dais upon which were two thrones. And there they sat to be greeted by us with the deepest submission. The king, in his own person, most graciously thanked us and again assured us of his favor. And it was already about five o'clock, and they could not stay longer. But as soon as the most, as the most important things could be loaded, we led the young royal persons down the spiral staircase through all the doors and guards down to the ship, where they embarked together with some of the maidens and Cupid and sailed away so swiftly that we soon lost sight of them. But I was told that they were met by many stately ships and that in, a, in four hours they had traveled many miles at sea. Now after five o'clock, the musicians were told to take everything back into the ships and to prepare for departure. But since it was going rather slowly, the old gentleman, for the first time, brought out some of his secret soldiers, who up to now had been hidden in the ramparts so that uh, we had seen none of them. For this, I could tell, from this, I could tell that the tower was well protected against opposition. These soldiers made short work of loading our belongings so there was soon no more to be done than to eat supper. A table was already set, and as the virgin brought us back to our, our companions, um, we had to look downcast and keep from laughing. Most of them smiled at one another, but uh, a few of them seemed, but a few of them seemed genuinely sorry for us. The old gentleman was with us at supper, and a keen inspector he was, and none could say anything so clever that he could not either turn it around or chap it and, or at least give some good information about it. And I learned a great deal from this gentleman, and it would be excellent if everyone were to go to him and learn his business. Then things would often turn out uh, not so badly. After we had eaten supper, the old gentleman led us into his cabinets of curiosities. And here and there in the bastions of the castle, and there we saw such marvels of nature by the human mind that even a year would not have sufficed us. We examined them by lamplight far into the night, and at last, when we desired to sleep, more than seeing any further strange things, we were led to our quarters, and there in the rampart had not only 
fine, comfortable beds, but usually elegant rooms. And this made us wonder all the more why we had been made to suffer so yesterday. I slept so well in my bedroom, and since I was largely unworried and weary from constant working, the soft rushing of the sea helped me to a sound and gentle sweep. And I continued in a dream from 11 o'clock at night until the morning. That's the end of the sixth day and of the sixth house being that of service and healing, which, of course, indeed it was. The seventh day in the seventh house is that of marriage. At eight o'clock, I awoke and quickly got myself ready, intending to go back to the tower. But the dark passages in the rampart were so many and various that I wandered a good while while before finding an exit. And this happened to the others, too, until at last we met in the lowest vault and were given clothes all in yellow, as well as our golden fleeces. And this time the Virgin told us that we were knights of the golden stone, which we had not known beforehand. And when we were all ready and breakfasted, the old gentleman presented each one of us with a golden medal, and on one side of which were these words, A-R-N-A-T-M-I, Ars Natura Ministria, Art is the Minister of Nature. That's on one side. And on the other side were the words, Tem N-A-F, Temporis Natura Filia, Nature is the Daughter of Time. The old gentleman explained to us, to take nothing over and beyond these mementos. Then we went out to the sea again, onto the sea again, where our ships lay so splendidly appointed that it seemed scarcely possible such beautiful things must have been brought there beforehand. There were 12 ships, six of ours and six of the old gentlemen's, the latter all manned by smartly turned out soldiers, and he himself came on our ship where we were all together, and in the first ship sat the musicians, on which there were a great number, sailing in front of us to make the time pass more pleasantly. Our flags were the twelve signs of the zodiac, and uh, we were in Libra. Of course, Libra, and I got a footnote on that, Libra is, is, is the natural ruler of the, of the, of the seventh house, and, and the king, of course, the, uh, the king and the queen are on the ship with Christian Rosencrantz. So this is the final proof that, uh, that the houses of Christian Rosencrantz's horoscope are also the days of the wedding. Among other things, our ship had a very lovely clock which showed all the minutes and the sea was so calm that it was a great pleasure to sail on it. Best of all was the old gentleman's discourse. He told us wonderful stories to pass the time so that I could have happily traveled with him all my life long. Meanwhile, the ships went quite speedily and before two hours had passed, a sailor told, told us that we could already see almost the whole lake covered with ships. And as soon as we left the sea and came through the channel of the lake, 
We were about five, there were about 500 vessels, among them one sparkling with pure gold and gemstones in which sat the king and the queen with many noble lords, ladies, and maidens. And as soon as they saw us, all the cannons on both sides were fired in salute, and there was such a din of trombones, trumpets, and kettle drums that all the ships on the lake shuddered. And finally, as we arrived, they surrounded our ships, and we hove into it. We hove to straight away. And old Atlas came aboard on the king's behalf, made a short but eloquent speech in which he bade us welcome. He asked whether the royal gift was ready, and my other companions wondered greatly how this king had, resur- had, had resurrected, for they thought that he wouldn't have to head. They thought they would have to re- reawaken him. But we left them in their confusion and acted as if we also did not understand. After Abbas's speech, our old gentleman came forward and responded with a somewhat longer oration, in which he wished the king and queen all joy and increase, and then he handed over a small decorated casket. What was in it? I do not know. Cupid alone was entrusted with it, as he flitted around between the two royals. And when the speech was over, a salvo was fired. And when we sailed together for a while until the last came, and for a while until at last we came to another waterfront. Now this landing was near the first gate by which I had originally entered. And on the square, a great crowd of the royal household was waiting, together with several hundred horse. As soon as we docked, and landed, the king and the queen offered each of us their hand with special courtesy. And we were all mounted on horseback, and here I would ask my friendly reader not to take this narrative as pride or self-gratification, but to believe that if it were not strictly necessary, I would much prefer to have kept silent about the honor shown to me. We were all distributed among the lords, but our old gentleman and my unworthy self had to ride beside the king, and each of us carrying a snow-white standard with a red cross. My treatment was surely due to my age, for both of us had long gray beards and hair, and I had fastened my tokens around my hat, which the young king soon noticed, asking whether I was one who was able to redeem these tokens uh, beneath the portal. And I answered humbly, yes. But he laughed at me and told me that I, I should need no decoration from now on. I was the father. And then he asked me what I had redeemed them with, and I answered, with water and with salt. Whereupon he asked, who had made me so wise? And then I grew bolder, and I told him that what had happened with my bread and the dove and the raven. And he was pleased, and he said expressly that God must have given me extraordinarily good fortune in this. Now we came to the first portal, where the blue-clad porter stood holding a petition in his hand. And as soon as he saw me beside the king, he handed me the petition, humbly entreating that I should remind the king 
of the porter's kindness to me. And first I asked the king how it stood with this porter, and he answered me in a friendly way that he had that he used to be a famous and skilled astrologer, held in great honor by the king's father, but that he had offended the lady Venus and had seen her in her bed. And as a punishment for this, he had, was made to guard the first portal until someone should release him from it. And I asked whether he whether he could now be released. And the king said, yes, if someone can be found who has committed as great a sin as he, they can take his place and he will be free. Now these words cut me to the quick, for my conscience convinced me that I was the offender. But I kept silent, and I handed over the petition. And as soon as the king had read it, he was so alarmed, and the queen who was riding behind us with her maidens and another queen, whom I remembered from the hanging of the weights, noticed it and asked what this letter meant. But he had not wanted anything to be noticed, and putting it away began to talk of other things until we came to the castle about three o'clock. When we had dismounted and accompanied the king into his hall, he called for old Atlas to join him in a small closet where he showed him the letter. And Atlas lost no time in hurrying away back to the porter to find out about this matter. And the young king sat down with his wife and the other lords and ladies and maidens. And then our virgin began to praise loudly our diligence and trouble and labors with the quest that we, that, that we be royally rewarded and that she might enjoy the benefit of her commission from then on. The old gentleman stood up and confirmed all that the virgin had spoken and said that it would be only just for us to receive satisfaction. And now we were told to step out for a while and each of us make a feasible wish which would be granted. But there was no doubt that the wisest would make the best wish. We were to think about it until after dinner. Now the king and the queen began to play a game with each other to pass the time. It resembled chess, but had different rules. And it was between the virtues and the vices that it was uh, it was pretty to see the traps that the vices had set for the virtues and how and how they could be countered. The game was so clever and ingenious that I wished it was available to the public. During the, game, during the game, Atlas returned and delivered his message secretly. Brushed from head to toe, and for my conscience, it left me no peace. The king told me to read the petition for myself, and the contents were roughly as follows. First, the porter wished to king prosperity and increase that his seed should be uh, spread far and wide. And then he indicated that the day had now come when, according to, to royal promise, he should be relieved. And if his observations did not deceive him, Venus had already been discovered by one of the guests. If his majesty would make keen and diligent inquiry, he would find that his discovery was true, this discovery was true. And if none such were to be found, 
he would remain by the gate for the rest of his life. And he then requested most humbly that if in peril of his life and limb he were permitted to attend the dinner that night, he would hope to identify the mystery of himself and thus earn the freedom he desired. All this was explicitly and eloquently put, and so that I could well appreciate the porter's ingenuity. But it was too painful for me, and I would prefer never to have set eyes upon it. I wondered whether I could help my way out of it through my wish. So I asked the king whether the porter could be released in any other way. No, answered the king, for there is a special consideration in this matter. But we may well concede his request uh, for this evening. Send someone out to fetch him here. Meanwhile, tables were being set in a room where we had never before, where we had never been before, and it was so perfect and well furnished that I cannot begin to describe it. We were conducted in with particular pomp and ceremony. Cupid was not there this time, for I learned that he was rather angry at the affront his mother had received, and in short, my action and the porter's petition were a matter of great for great sorrow. The king hesitated to insinuate to insinuate an inquiry among all the guests, for then those who knew nothing of the matter would find out about it. So as soon as the porter arrived, he let the man himself look sharply around him while the king behaved as cheerfully as he could. Now people began to be merrier and to make all kinds of interesting and diverting conversation, and there is no need to describe the feast or the other ceremonies. Everything was splendidly served and performed and enjoyed, thanks more to art and human skill than, and, than the plentiful wine at the table. This was the last and most splendid meal we had attended, and after the banquet the tables were quickly cleared and some elegant chairs put around in a circle in which we all sat together with the king and the queen, and the two and the, and the two men and the ladies and the maidens. The handsome page now opened the wonderful little book mentioned earlier, and Atlas placed himself in the midst and began to read from it to us, to the effect that his majesty had not forgotten what we had done for him and how diligently we had discharged our duties. And therefore, as a, as a reward, he appointed each and every one of us a knight of the golden stone. And we were to note that henceforth he must not only submit to his majesty, but to hold uh, to the following articles. Thus his majesty would know how to behave toward his liegemen. Then Atlas had the page read, and the articles were these. Two lord knights shall swear to ascribe your order, not to do any devil or spirit, but only to God your creator, and to nature his handmaiden. You are knights shall swear to ascribe your order, not to any devil or spirit, but only to God your creator, and to nature his handmaiden. You shall abominate all whoredom, incontinence, uncleanness, and not defile your order with such vices. Through your gifts, you shall willingly come to the aid of all who are deserving and in need. 
you shall not desire this honor to use for worldly show or high esteem. You shall not wish to live longer than God wills. Now, we had to live with it, laugh at the last article, which was perhaps put, uh, put in only as a joke, but we, we agreed to swear to it uh, on the king's scepter when we were installed as knights with the customary rights. And among other privileges, set over ignorance, poverty, and sickness to deal with them as, to, as we desired. This was afterwards ratified in a little chapel to which we were led in procession. And we gave thanks to God for it. And then I hung up my golden fleece and my hat in God's honor and left them there as an everlasting memorial. And as each of us had to write his name, I wrote thus, Summa Cynthia Nihil Sakeli, Frater Christianus Rosencruz Sacquisare Lapidius Sano Domini, 1459. The height of knowledge is to know nothing. Brother Christian Rosenkreutz, Knight of the Golden Stone, in the year 1459. Others wrote otherwise, each as he saw fit, and then we were brought back into the hall and seated, and were advised that we should consider quickly what we were going to wish for. The king and his party had gone into the little closet to hear our wishes themselves, and each one of us was called in separately, so that I can say nothing about anyone else's wish. I had been thinking that nothing would be more laudable than to display some praiseworthy virtue for the honor of my order. Now I could find none more honorable or hard won than gratitude, and hence Although I could gladly have wished for something I desired more, I mastered myself and decided what, whatever danger to release my benefactor, the porter. And when I was called in, I was first asked, since I had read the petition, whether I had noticed or suspected anything about the culprit. And thereupon I fearlessly began to relate all of the events that had passed and how I had fallen into them through ignorance, and it offered to atone for all I had done. The king and the other lords were much surprised at this unexpected news and told me to step out for a while, and as soon as I returned, Atlas informed me how painful it was to his majesty that, that I, beloved by him above all, should have come to such a misfortune, but that since they could not contravene their ancient conditions, Nothing could prevent the porter from being freed and myself put in his place. They hoped that another would soon be caught so that I could go home again, uh, but no release could be expected before the wedding feast of the king's future son. This verdict nearly killed me, and I was immediately furious with myself for my babbling mouth and for not keeping quiet. But... In the end, I took heart, and since it seemed unavoidable, I related how this porter had given me a token and recommended me to the second porter, by whose help I had resisted the scales and partook of all the honor and joy I had received. And since it was only right to be grateful to one's benefactor, and as I could not be otherwise, I accepted my sentence and was happy to accept some inconvenience 
that would help him in his situation. But if something could still be done with my wish, I wish myself back home. And thus, he would be freed by me, and I would be freed by my wish. And they answered that wishes did not stretch that far, or else I could simply have wished wished him free. And his majesty was pleased that I had behaved so well, but uh, was afraid that I that I did not yet realize what sad condition my, inquis- my inquisitiveness had plunged me into. Now the good man was set at liberty, and I had to take my leave with a heavy heart. And, of course, I have no heroes, and it should be obvious to the reader that the, you know, the author is suggesting this entire episode has been contrived by the royals and their palace staff to entrap old Christian Rosenkreutz and other guests. It's one of the teaching points of the allegory, similar to a military training exercise where soldiers are captured by simulated enemy forces and subjected to minor mistreatment. After me, the others were summoned in and all came out happily, which was all the more painful to me since I imagined that I would have to spend the rest of my life beneath the gate and I racked my brains over what I should do and how I should spend the time. And at length I concluded that I was already old and I had only a few more years to live and this misery and melancholy would soon do away with me and then I would be done with gatekeeping. And I could even bring myself into the grave by means of a peaceful sleep. And I had many such thoughts and at times I was vexed and that that I had seen such such beautiful things and must be deprived of them. At At other times, I was happy that before my end, I had been admitted to every joy and not sent away shamefully. But this realization uh, was the last rudest shock I suffered. As I meditated thus, the others made ready, and after they had bade the king and the queen good night, each was conducted to his lodging. But no one showed me the way. And I, poor fellow, had to continue in my chagrin and also to be in doubt of my future, my future function. And I had put on the ring and, uh, that the other had worn before me. And at last the king advised me that since this was the last time I would see him in this condition, I should conduct myself according to my position and not against the rules of the order. Thereupon... He took me in his arms and kissed me, and from all of this I understood that tomorrow I must sit sit at my gate. After that, they all talked to me in friendship a little while longer, and then given me, gave me their hands and wished me God's protection. And I was led by the two old men, the old gentleman of the tower and Atlas, into a splendid bedroom where there were three beds. And each of us lay down on one of them, and there we spent uh, almost two. And about two pages in the quarto are missing here, in which the author, thinking that he must be a gatekeeper in the morning, returns home. And as suggested in the introduction, the author uses a dream dimension to encapsulate the entire adventure so all Christian Rosenkreutz has to do to return home is wake up in his own bed. 
Thus ends the story of the chemical running. Several analogies are obvious. First, Christian Rosenkreutz is, like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, a Christ figure. Venus is obviously Mary Magdalene. And the alchemical wedding, which Rosenkreutz is unable to attend, is the sacred marriage of Valentinian Gnostic Christianity, which he is allowed to return home and perform internally. It could also be performed externally with one's spouse or bound concubine, to use Frank Herbert's appropriate phrase. A description of the rite can be found in the Gospel of Philip. Both Jacob Borm, Johann Gichtel, William Blake, and Aleister Crowley have written on this ritual. But we should note that a profound respect for the divine feminine is required if it is to be successfully worked internally or externally in a proper philosophical and spiritual sense. Jacob Borm and William Blake were both successful in this regard, whereas Johann Gichtel's prudishness and Aleister Crowley's lust yielded unbalanced results. Upon completing my study of the chemical wedding, I undertook the following operation, which will be described as follows. This is the yoga of Hyros Gamos, and uh, this, this is based upon the chemical wedding, and that, of course, will be our subject for next week. And uh, so you have that to look forward to, and we will we will bring down uh, we'll bring down the uh, the paraclete, the messenger, uh, all the way down from from the Empyrean heights, and, and and we'll we'll go ahead and we'll and we'll perform the operation that Christian Rosenkirch was not allowed to observe. And so uh, until next week, good magic.